Thank you for listening to this podcast brought to you by Reach Life Church in Asheville, North Carolina. Our mission is changing life by making, growing, and unleashing gospel-centered disciples of Jesus. For more information, resources, or to connect with us online, visit www.reachlifechurch.org. Good morning, everybody. Thank you for spending uh, part of your Mother's Day with us. Um, my name is Terry. If we haven't met, I'm one of the pastors here, and it is a privilege to be one of the pastors of Reach Life. Um, we are continuing in a series that we started last week that where we're going through the Bible in like a big sweeping overview, and so we've we've called this series the Big Picture for that for that very reason. And our goal is to look at the major themes of each book of the Bible on a given Sunday so that we can increase our knowledge of the Bible as a whole. You can see that we are a, over there on the wall, a biblically rooted church. And so we want to kind of up our uh, biblical understanding. And we want to be able to see that really the Bible is a cohesive unit. It's a, it's a picture, a revelation, if you will, of Jesus. And so our goal is to do that on Sunday mornings here for the next little while. And, and seeing the Bible in that grand, sweeping, cohesive revelation of Jesus should cause us to worship Him more fully. And that's our ultimate goal. And hopefully you'll be able to do that as we look at the second part of Genesis today. And as we begin, I want to remind you that life, uh, interesting that we speak about this on Mother's Day, but life is really all about relationships, is it not? It's true. It's true. Um, but sometimes, even though it's true, it doesn't feel very good, the fact that life is all about relationships. Well, why? Because relationships don't always feel good, do they? Relationships can be difficult. Um, and that's because in our relationships, we are one sinner trying to love another sinner, are we not? Right? We are broken people trying to love broken people. Our, our friends can desert us. Loved ones can harm us. Parents can fail their children. Children can fail their parents. We seem to hurt those whom we love the most, the most. We hurt most those whom we love the most. And um, again, we're finite, broken people seeking to be in relationship with finite, broken people. And today I want, you to, I want to point us to the very one single exclusive place where we can find a relationship that will never let us down is a relationship with the infinite, the infinite, perfect God. And so we'll be um, looking at the, the real God this morning, the real God who never leaves. We just sang about this, the real God who never leaves. He's faithful. He's, he never forsakes. He always keeps his word. He is faithful when we are not faithful, right? The all-knowing, all-wise, all-powerful, all-loving God works effectively, this is amazing, for our good. Incredible, uh, if we can get a hold of that today. And so the question would be, couldn't you use a deeper relationship with that kind of God? Wouldn't that be life-giving, life-improving, life-saving if we had a relationship and a deeper one than we do now with that sort of God? Well, Today, I want to look at um, the second half of the book of Genesis, the message of Genesis being the covenant-making God. Last week, we began the big picture series. Um, with Man, we covered a ton of ground, both historically and theologically. We're going to continue to do that. These weeks are going to be like drinking from a fire hydrant, and I want to uh, talk in just a little bit about how to help you 
do that more effectively. But we looked at creation, you know, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And in other words, there was God and nothing else. And then God made all else that exists. And then we saw corruption. Part of uh, God's creation was us. And he's so good and loving, he endowed us with the ability to rebel because he's loving. Uh, Forced love is not love. He's loving. He gave us the freedom to rebel. And guess what we did? We rebelled. And now the whole creation, including us, is broken because of that. We, we call that the fall for a reason. And then we saw that there was catastrophe, that in our fallen state, we had become so corrupted that God wiped the slate clean and saved one guy, Noah, and his sons and their wives all upon the face of the earth. Yet we saw last week that even in the midst of that judgment, God provided a, a, that man, Noah, whom Hebrews describes as a preacher of righteousness, who preached for 120 years, get on the boat right? A preacher of righteousness. God provided a salvation even in his judgment, an ark of salvation. And then we saw confusion. After the flood, we were still rebelling. <laughs> and so God had, had said, go multiply, fill the earth, just like he had told us back in Genesis chapter, chapter 2. And as soon as we got off the boat, we began forming a plan. We're going to gather ourselves rather than spread ourselves. We're going to make a nation and a name for ourselves. We were continuing to rebel against God. And so in God's kindness, he, would, he didn't let us do that. In his kindness, he confused our language and spread us over the earth. Um, so then in our section for today, after God had spread the nations around, uh, we see him choose a people from among those nations for himself, a people through whom the Savior for those people, people to come and for us would be born so that those rebels and us rebels could be reconciled to the God that we've rebelled against. And so before we dive in, I told you I was going to give you just a little tip about how to get the most from this series. Um, Again, even today, we're going to cover a ton of history, a ton of theology, and it's going to be like skipping a stone across a pond, right? And so I would encourage you to bring your Bibles on Sundays, and hopefully we'll hear like like rustling of pages. It's a beautiful sound. As we go, of course, we'll have the Scripture up on the screen, but it's better if you follow along in your own copy of the Word of God. What if I'm lying to you? You think it's funny, right? Like, test these things to see if they be true, right? Read the Scriptures for yourselves, right? Dig in. We want to create Bible uh, feeders here, Uh, not bottle feeders, Bible feeders, so that uh, you could you could drink the word of God in for yourself, and I would encourage you to actually read ahead. So, for example, next week we'll be doing Exodus part one. Maybe jump in on the first few chapters of Exodus for next week. That way, when you come, you've already got thoughts running in your mind. You've already got the word of God in. So, when we go through and give the overview, things start to click together for you, right? That's the goal. That that's the way to digest these things, and then of course discuss them in MCs uh, as we go. So, as we pick up in the book of, in, of Genesis, I want us to see that. The rest of the book, the second half, is God picking a man named Abram, whose name he would later change to Abraham. You'll hear me use those names interchangeably today. I can't help myself, but you'll, you'll hear that uh, today. Abram and Abraham are the same guy. Um, and specifically, God makes a covenant with him. Right. So we've seen creation, corruption, catastrophe, confusion. God makes a covenant with this guy named Abram. And that means that... That's what makes, that's what makes the, uh, the Hebrews the chosen people. God chose to make a covenant with them, th- and then through them, the Messiah 
would come. And so uh, God makes a covenant, and that's why I've called this title today, The Covenant-Making God. Notice the emphasis is on God. Now, we're going to read about Abraham and his descendants and, and all these people, but Genesis, including the second half of Genesis, is not about Abraham. It's about God. Right? God is the protagonist, if you will. He is the central figure of this uh, part of Scripture and of the entire Bible. Uh, the entire scope of history is about God. You know, the old adage is, history is His story, and it's very true. Um, specifically, it's the revelation of God the Son, Jesus, as, as we will see. So when I say God makes a covenant... It's not a word that we use very often, is it? Covenant. It sounds weird and old-fashioned and like stodgy or whatever, but I want to take a look at what the word covenant means before we jump into our Scripture because it, I want us to get what's happening here. And so the Lexham Bible Dictionary has some very interesting words on covenant that I thought would help us, and I think they capture the heart of it. And listen, listen carefully to the Lexham Bible Dictionary. It says, Jewish scholars... See that covenants in antiquity represent sealing sacred kinship, note that word, bonds between two parties by means of both legal sanction and liturgical rite. As Harvard professor F.M. Cross explains, covenant, quote, is a widespread legal means by which the duties and privileges of, note that word again, kinship may be extended to an, uh, another individual or group, including Aliens. So again, I said note there that word kinship. A covenant is a bonding of people, right? It, it binds one person or group to another person or group in a familial way. It's like creating a family-type bond. And that gets to the heart of what covenant it is because I want you to notice that God isn't only making a contract with Abram. God's making a covenant with Abram. Listen to Lexham just a little more. Contracts and covenants differ in a few areas. In terms of initiation, contracts are made by exchange of promises, whereas covenants are sworn by solemn oaths. In application, contracts are limited by the terms of exchange of property. This is yours, this is mine. While covenants involve an exchange of life, I am yours. You are mine. Do you see the significant difference there? And this is what God is doing with Abraham. He is making a covenant. So if, we, if we're going to understand what it means for us to be in relationship with God, we need to understand God's covenant with Abraham. It really gets to the core of what relationship with God is all about. So again, we're going to be talking about the covenant making God. And the first thing, if you're a note taker, I know the, the weekly's blank this week, uh, but I want you to take lots of notes. The first thing I'd like for you to write down is that God himself provides in this covenant. That's the first term of the covenant that God makes. God specifically will provide the Savior. Let's pick up the journey of the big picture in Genesis chapter 12. If you're, if you're not there already, Genesis chapter 12 in your, in your Bibles. And again, it'll be on screen, but I love to hear the rustling of the pages. Um, read the word for yourself. Genesis 1, 12, I'm sorry, Genesis 12, 1 through 3 says, The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. 
I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. In Scripture, these are known as the seven I will statements of God. God is saying what He's going to do in the life of Abraham or through the life of Abraham in this covenant. It's all of God's plan for humanity from Genesis 4 through the, through the end of the book are kind of derived from these I will statements. Abraham will not only be a blessing to his people, but all nations, because the Messiah was going to come through him. Remember, all nations will be blessed through Abram. And again, we see that God is the central figure. God is saying, I will do this. God is saying, he is the savior of humanity. It's not Abraham. Abraham's going to be a great guy. God is the savior of humanity. It's God's plan. He's going to use Abraham to enact, enact his plan, but it's God's plan. And God's going to do it. God will provide. And we'll talk about more all, on all that as, as we go. Uh, now, the fact that the Lord is telling Abram here to leave his country and his people has huge implications. Um, we know on this side of history uh, that one of the purposes was to separate Abraham from the pagan uh, religions of the people of his own family and the people around him. Abraham lived in a place called Ur, the Chaldees, and uh, where Abram was born, they worshiped a god of the moon. And they were surrounded by groups of people who were worshiping other pagan false gods. And we can't get into all of it this morning, but that was a direct result of what happened at Babel. Even after God spread the people out because of their languages, they were still rebelling and went and worshiped false gods. And so Abram's people were among those people on the earth worshiping false gods. And God pulls Abram out of those people. Literally, this word is sanctifying. God sanctifies. He, he pulls a people out for himself from among the people. God is literally creating a family for himself. Remember, covenants are relational. God's creating a family, a human family for himself. And God says, these are my people. I am their God. Right? I am yours. You are mine. It's a relational thing. And uh, it would be these people, again, through whom the Messiah would come. Now, speaking of the Messiah, uh, we know that in creating a family for himself, God the Father would send God the Son, who would add humanity to his divinity, becoming fully human, remaining fully God, but also becoming fully human uh, so that he can redeem us back to relationship with himself. Well, next in our text, there's an amazing foreshadowing, and I... I'm not using that word lightly. If you read this for yourself and you dig into all of this, this is crazy, crazy town stuff. This is amazing foreshadowing of the Savior. That'd be the next thing for you to write down, a foreshadowing of the Savior. There's a, a strange figure that kind of pops up in the text here. Uh, you may have heard about this account before, but some people take this, this guy Melchizedek shows up uh, to be uh, a foreshadowing of Jesus. And I would agree. Uh, he is at least that, <laughs> right? I, I and others would say that he's, he's more than that. Um, that Abraham, I would say that Abraham actually got to visit what's known as a pre-incarnate Christ then. In other words, God the Son would be taking on a temporary 
uh, human likeness, kind of the way like angels are able to take on temporary human likeness before actually taking on human nature and becoming uh, born uh, of the virgin, as we sang earlier. And so I would say that, that Abram could meet with the Messiah here in advance. Um, and then whether you hold that view or not, whether you think that that is the Messiah in advance or if it's just a foreshadowing, all can agree that it is at least a foreshadowing of the Savior. And, it, and God uses it to confirm His promises to send the Savior. And then in Genesis 14, there's a battle of nine kings. A group of four kings battle a group of five kings. The group of four kings won. And following that battle, a town called Sodom was attacked, and Abram's nephew, Lot, had been taken prisoner. Well, Abram uh, rescues his nephew, and on the way back is where they meet this guy, Melchizedek. Melchizedek is described as a priest king. And Melchizedek, I want you to notice, is a title, not a name. How do we know that? Because Melch means king. Zadok means righteousness. They are meeting with the king of righteousness. And uh, Abram met him at the base of a mountain called Moriah, which would later, a place would be called Jerusalem. Again, more on that later. But Melchizedek is called a priest of the Most High God. He receives tithes from Abraham. He administers bread and wine to Abraham. Again, he's called a king and a priest. The Bible teaches us that Jesus is the only legitimate king and priest, right? You can't be both. Um, We're told that Melchizedek is without beginning or end. Psalm 110 and three chapters in the middle of Hebrews relate this person to the Savior. Again, whether you take my view or, or not, this is at least an amazing foreshadowing of what God was going to do. God was going to provide a priest king. God was going to provide a priest king whose reign has no beginning and no end. He was going to provide a priest king who would rule over and bless his people forever. Well, wasn't this the promise to Abraham? This was the promise. And I believe Abraham was getting to experience this promise in a mysterious encounter that took place literally thousands of years before Jesus would actually come to the planet. He was, Abraham was able to see this covenant in front of him. The takeaway here in this, from this section of Scripture is that the covenant-making God is in control of time and space. Let that sit in your soul for just a minute. What are you going through in life? The covenant-making God is in control of time and space. You feel like God has promised you something that you haven't seen happen yet. I'm here to tell you that the covenant-making God is in control of time and space. That should bring us great comfort. Uh, Of course, Jesus would become our king via his sacrifice on our behalf, and that leads to the next thing I would have you write down, a foreshadowing of the sacrifice. If you're uh, following along, we're in Genesis 15 now. And we'll see God make an unconditional unilateral covenant with Abraham. Let's read together, Genesis 15, 1 to 6. Um, We're going to see, you know, God had previously promised Abraham, many nations are going to come from you, great nations, all nations will be blessed through you because the Messiah is going to be born through your lineage. Yet we find Abraham advanced in years. He's getting old, has not seen the, the, the promise of the covenant come to pass. Where is God? 
Where is the fulfillment of God's promise? Look at Genesis 15, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring. And a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he, Abram, believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. I want to pause and just um, have us see a crucial truth. Why was Abram counted as righteous before God? Audience participation. He believed in him. If, you've, if you remember our, uh, our study through Genesis before, Abram's not a great dude. Abram made all kinds of mistakes, right? If Abram's counting on righteous, his own righteousness to make him right with God, not going to happen. That's great news for us, <laughs> right? Because Abram believed God and was counted as righteous. Specifically, God or Abram believed God's covenant promise. And so I just want to throw out to you, what do you know about God's covenant promise for you? And are you believing it? Well, if you don't know about it, we're going to talk about it here in just a little bit. The same is true for us. We're not saved by works. We're saved by grace, God's offer of covenant, through faith in God and His covenant, and we're made righteous, righteous before God. Salvation in the Old Testament is the same as salvation in the New Testament. It's by grace, through faith, and God's covenant promise. Um, again, we see God make this covenant and seal it in a unilateral, uh, unconditional way. And as we mentioned earlier, covenants are sealed um, earlier in our, our Genesis study, is, are sealed with a ceremony. You ever been to a wedding? That's a ceremony sealing a covenant is, is what's supposed to be taking place there. And we see God seal His covenant with Abraham in a ceremony where God performs it all. Look at Genesis 15, verse 7 with me. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I possess it? I shall possess it. And he, God, said to him, Abram, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these things, cut them in half, and laid each half over and against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Verse 12. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, Dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Look down in verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. This is a ceremony that you're seeing here. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, 
to your offspring I give this land. From the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the land of the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Man, if you don't, those names mean something, man. I would encourage you to do a little study on who those people are. And God is giving the land to Abraham. God is sealing his covenant with Abraham. Actually, notice, in a sacrifice. In a sacrifice. It's unconditional because Abram doesn't take any part in it. Remember, uh, God alone walks through this sacrifice. Abraham was asleep. God, God knocked him out, it seems, right? This is, again, it's a picture that God alone provides the sacrifice. He provides the this, this symbol of his uh, commitment uh, to followers of the Messiah. Abraham looking to the Messiah in advance, us looking back to the Messiah. God will, uh, here's the takeaway, God will uphold his covenant even when we're sleeping. When we can't do a thing, God is faithful when we're unfaithful, we're not even able to be faithful. He is faithful. And this covenant is reconfirmed by an oath that God makes with Abram in Genesis 22. And Genesis 22 is one of the most pivotal passages in all the Bible. And I think it's one of the clearest pictures of what Jesus would accomplish on our behalf. Abram's son, Isaac. Scholars think it was probably in his early 30s at this time. We picture Isaac a little guy. He's a grown man. Um, when God says to Abram, take your son, your only son, Isaac, Genesis 22, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. We, now, didn't we hear that word before, land of Moriah? We'll talk about it in a minute. <laughs> and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now, there's a, there's a principle in literary studies, specifically in biblical study, that's known as the law of first mention. And it is, that means that when a word is first mentioned, a categorical word is first mentioned in Scripture, then that word should inform how we view the definition and meaning of that word elsewhere when we read it in Scripture. Did you know that right here in Genesis chapter 22, verse 2, is the very first time the word love is ever mentioned in the Bible. You don't see it before. Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. It echoes John 3.16, doesn't it? That God would give his only son because he loved the world so much that we can be reconciled to him. All other love should be measured by this right here is the point. All other love is measured. And so let's look at what God did so far in advance, almost 2,000 years before Jesus, to show what he was going to do. There's going to be a series of slides that come up, and I just want you to, to follow what's going on here, the sacrifice of Isaac, or was going to be the sacrifice of Isaac, but wasn't. Mount Moriah is like a ridge system. You can kind of see it going through there in the middle. There's an outline of it coming up that you'll see. That's, that's Mount Moriah. It's actually a, a ridge system of, of mountains. And on the ridge, about 600 meters above sea level, is a place that was called Salem. This is where Melchizedek was encountered on Mount Moriah. About 700 and 41 meters above sea level, there's a little saddleback where it dips, and that's where the threshing floor, Bible students, 
uh, was purchased by David and can be found today. That's where the Temple Mount is. That's not the top of the ridge, though. At 777 meters, maybe a coincidence, maybe not, (laughs) above sea level is a place called Golgotha. This is where Abraham was supposed to offer Isaac. Does Golgotha sound familiar to you? Abraham was to offer Isaac there, and 2,000 years later, the father did offer his son on that very spot. And interestingly, Abraham knew he was kind of acting out prophecy in advance. Look at uh, verse 14 in Genesis 22. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. Or your translation may say, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Or on the mount of the Lord, he will be seen. Both translations are clear, right? Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, was provided for us on that very spot, and Abraham knew it. I believe Abraham knew it. You know, at the time of Moses, when all this is is being recorded uh, for Genesis, they were still looking for the future. It will be provided on that mountain. He will be seen on that mountain. God provided. Jesus would be seen. Jesus would be provided for us. So two things should be very clear to us at this point. As I said before, God is in control of history, time and space. The second thing is that it's all about Jesus. It really is all about Jesus. So his his covenant is sure. His promises are true. When God said for us now on this side of history that he's made atonement, payment for your sins, he has. They've been paid for. And because of that, you can know that he will give you strength to follow him even when you're asleep, even when you're unfaithful, not just now, but for eternity. But thankfully, that includes right here, right now. So you may be asking yourself, you know, Terry, we we sang earlier about the return of Jesus and, you know, that uh, we're going to we're going to experience a resurrection like he experienced the resurrection when he returns. And you're talking about his covenant promise that he's supposed to be faithful to. Well, where is he? It's been like 2,000 years, hasn't it? Where is he? How long are we supposed to wait? Um, well, remember that this picture on, the Mount, on Mount Moriah was about 2,000 years before Jesus. I don't know if that's coincidental. I don't know when Jesus is going to return. But I do know that we can wait, and his covenant is sure. His covenant is true. When he promises he will, he will return, he will return just like he came the first time. Abraham looked for it, did not get to see it. No one saw it 2,000 years. We long for Jesus' return. Hang in there. He's coming. He's, he's coming. And I want to pause here to ask a, a really clear question of us today. Have you allowed God's provision for the forgiveness of your sins that he made in history, that was promised to come and did, have you allowed God's provision to be placed upon your life for the forgiveness of your sins? I would encourage you to do so. I would encourage you to do so. There's no time like the present. And if you have done that, are you existentially, as you sit in the seat or watch online, in your soul, 
Are you resting in the peace and assurance that you know He is true to His covenant promise? The world's going to just crazy. It's dumpster fire out there, right? Where's Jesus? He's good for His covenant, you guys. He's good for, he will return. He's also good for his covenant in that he says, lo, I am with you always until the end of the age, right? He's with us. He's good for his promises. You can trust God. That's the next thing I would have you write down, that God fulfills his plan. I just want to uh, touch on some things as we, as we kind of come to the, to the uh, back end of Genesis I want you to see the, the people that led up to this substitute of Jesus, the, the, the progenitors, if you will. Jacob was a descendant of Abraham. Uh, he's the father of the nation of Israel, and God would later change his name from Jacob, deceiver, uh, to Israel. And all 12 tribes of Israel would come from him. God's chosen people went from uh, Abraham. He narrowed it down now to Israel and um, this is where God begins to refer to himself as, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why does God refer to himself that way? I'm the God who's faithful to Abraham. I'm the God who's faithful to Isaac. I'm the God who's faithful to Jacob. The implication is, he's the God who's faithful to you, right? So then Joseph, a descendant of Isaac, I'm sorry, yeah, descendant of Isaac, but a descendant of Israel, was favored and uh, by his dad and his brothers hated him. His brothers sold him into slavery in Egypt. And so he was raised in Egypt, just like Moses had been. He gained great prominence in Egypt. Pharaoh literally gave him the keys to the kingdom. He was second in command there. And because of that, there was a severe drought in the land. And Joseph was able to save the lives of his family by bringing them in and allowing them to partake of the supply of Egyptian food. And again, we see God working in history, not just despite our stupid decisions, but sometimes even through them, right? Um, even man's evil choices of, of throwing your brother into slavery um, cannot overcome God's covenant promise with his people, right? Uh, do you realize, again, that should bring us great hope, church, as we face increased alienation and like dissonance with the culture, um, we face times of physical and emotional famine in our lives. The covenant-making God is with us, and He is working even this. Whatever's going on in your life, even if it's the result of evil choices by other people against you, He's working even this for your good and His glory. Well, speaking of uh, being sold into bondage, Joseph tells his brothers in Genesis 50, verse 20. Yeah, we jump to 50 now. Genesis 50. He says, As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Well, uh, Jacob and the family moved to Egypt and were provided for. They lived there for like 400 years. 30 years of that were great. They were comfortable. And then a Pharaoh arose that did not know Joseph, and they put the Israelites into bondage. And that leads us to the book of Exodus next week where we'll pick up uh, so I would encourage you to read ahead and see what takes place there. But before we, we, we jump out, I want to leave us with just a little account from Genesis 49. Back up just a tad. Genesis 49. To help us remember our focus, the last thing I would write, have you write down, God keeps His promises. In Genesis 49, Jacob's old. Um, he's prophesying over each of his 12 sons. 
And the prophecies were weird, right? Like they were riddles, kind of. And in the prophecy over the tribe of Judah, this is what Jacob says. The scepter, that is the rule of a king, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him, Shiloh, shall be the obedience of the people. Now that word Shiloh is recognized by uh, Jewish rabbis before Christianity and after Christianity as referring to the Messiah. They're still waiting on him. We know that he's arrived. Um, so, uh, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. We're well, saying, why are you pointing this out to me? Big deal. Yes, it's a big deal because in AD seven. Keep, keep that, that date in your head. 87, there was a Roman procurator named Caponius. And he removed the legal powers of the Sanhedrin, who was the ruling body of the Jews, and they couldn't uh, give capital punishment. Again, connect the dots, 87, capital punishment. And this is why the Sanhedrin had to go to Pilate when they wanted to execute Jesus. And the Babylonian Talmud records that the Sanhedrin in AD 7, keep the date in your mind, put on sackcloth and ashes. They were weeping. They walked around the walls of Jerusalem crying, and they said, Woe unto us, for the scepter has departed from Judah, and the Messiah has not come. Are you connecting these dots? AD 7, they thought, that God's covenant had been broken, they recognized Genesis 49.10 as a prophecy. But little did they know, even while they were mourning and weeping because they thought the scepter had departed from Jerusalem and the Messiah had not come, walking around in sorrow, up in Nazareth, 87, a little carpenter shop, had been born the Messiah. He's a little kid working in his dad's shop. The Messiah they had been waiting for had come. They did not even know it. Our covenant-making God always comes through. Right on time, in His time, He keeps His promises. And again, I would tell you, even now, He is working for your good. So where, who are you trusting today? Where are you placing your hope? Well, the God of heaven and earth offers to make a covenant with you. Where else are you going to place your hope? Where else are you going to place your trust? And I want to remind you of the covenant that God offers to make. Sorry, Scott. Scott's a pro. He follows me over here on camera every week. Thank you. Georgiana follows the slides when I get them wrong. Thank you, Georgiana. Um, but I want to remind you of the covenant that God kept. Jesus says... Go with me to Luke 22 in your New Testament. Luke 22, 14 to 20. This is before Jesus' death on the cross. It says, When the hour came, he, Jesus, reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. This is the Jewish Passover meal they're observing. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. 
And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And so this morning, as we do every week, we get to remember the new covenant. The covenant-making God keeps his covenants. When he puts that, that uh, conviction in your heart, I am a sinner. I need forgiveness. And he makes you aware that you can't forgive yourself, you can't do enough good works to make yourself righteous before God. He says, I'll make a covenant with you. I'll make a covenant with you. Place your trust in me. If you bow the knee to me, I will raise you up to walk in newness of life. I'll forgive you. I'll wash you clean. I'll live with you now. I will be yours. You will be mine. And that will be true forever. So we get to remember that every week. And so I would encourage you to spend some time in prayer right now. Maybe you want to remember just what God has done. Maybe you're in a place of life. I need to remember that the covenant-making God said he is with me and for me. (laughs) As astonishing as that is. Maybe you need to remember that the covenant-making God has made a covenant with you. You belong to him. Maybe you need to consider, I am outside of God's covenant. I have not trusted what Jesus has done for me. Do that today. I would encourage you to do that today. And then when you're ready, after that, come remember what Jesus has done for you. I'd love to talk with you more if you have any questions or want to talk about what we've discussed today. Spend some time in prayer. When you're ready, come remember Jesus.